friends, yes. Um, he has had a long career in the field of development, including as a special advisor to the president of the IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, he has also been president of the OECD Development Center, um, the rector of the ISS, Institute of Social Studies in The Hague, and he has been director of the ILO's employment program. So he has had a long track record in several international organizations concerned in one way or another with development. And then secondly, Richard Jolly, um, who has had an equally long career in development. In fact, he began as a community uh, development officer in the British Colonial Service in Kenya in 1957-58. This was as a conscientious objector rather than doing national service. So he spent 57-58, uh, bit of 59, on the ground doing community development. He tells me one of his projects was a sports officer. Um, and then he went on to do a PhD in economics at Yale, followed by uh, a fellowship at the Institute of Development Studies, where he was director of the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex from 1971 to 82. And it happened that I joined IDS as a fellow in 1972, so we are almost coterminous. Um, Richard went on to become Assistant Secretary General of the UN. Then um, he had a senior position in UNICEF, became head of the Human Development Report at UNCTAD. UNDP. Sorry, yes. Sorry <laughs> Administrator is How could I have made worried that mistake? about LSE's yes. accuracy on U UNDP, not UNCTAD. <laughs> and then uh, is now a, an honorary professor at the Institute of Development Studies, where he started all those years ago. Um, so the format of the event will be that it's going to be a bit like a tag wrestling match mm. uh, where Richard begins uh, by introducing the project then Louis continues on the content of the UN's economic ideas and then goes back to Richard who will draw up a balance sheet of pluses and minuses in the UN's ideas and then back to Louis for the conclusion one of my colleagues said unkindly that a book called UN Ideas That Changed the World must be a very short Sorry. book. Um, however, I think you'll come out of this event concluding that that is quite unfair. Thank you very much, Robert. And I hope by the end of our presentations, uh, you will indeed have quite a lot of thought uh, and stimulus on that question. Are we over... Uh, stating it when we say UN ideas that change the world or are we in fact summarizing what too often is marginalized the role of the UN in many international uh, arenas so many people think of the UN as well a talk shop concerned with the Security Council does it ever manage to reach decisions and so forth but very rarely do people emphasize the economic and social side of the UN, which is indeed what our, book has our books have concentrated on. 
Before I get into that, I want to just say it's very nice to see so many people here. Let me start with the next generation. I hope that uh, many of you will be inspired to look again at the UN, the UN's role as part of your destined studies and perhaps of your destination in the long run, but perhaps that's a pun that's often made. I'm very glad that we see Mark Malik-Brown present because when he was in UNDP uh, and afterwards uh, as Deputy Secretary General, he gave a lot of support to this project and I must pay particular tribute to Claire Short uh, for I think six years, the Minister of DFID and Development who gave us support along as you'll see with others uh, that enabled us to get this project underway. So this uh, book is the final volume of 17 in the UN Intellectual History Project. It's uh, very nice to be presenting it and it's very nice to be able to say we've written this final volume as a summary volume to save you necessarily having to read all the other 16. We did want to make sure that the main conclusions came out loud and clear. We have concentrated on the intellectual contributions of the UN. And in fact, ideas have been central to all the UN's work. Ideas of peace, human rights, social justice, rising living standards, and, in many, and many others, as I'll indicate. And from the beginning, from the very uh, written agreement on the Charter, these ideas have not been abstract concepts, but the UN's core motivating visions and operational guidelines, certainly leading to action. UN ideas have been normative, interpretive, descriptive, sometimes indeed statistical. And as Michael Doyle, a former advisor to Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General, has said, echoing Stalin's derisory question, how many divisions has the Pope? And we've come to the conclusion that ideas are the big battalions of the UN and have been for more than 60 years. There is nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. And one of the points that will come out in our presentation is that the UN has often come up with ideas before their time has come and stuck with them until their time, in many cases, has come. They've been recognized for their importance and accepted. The full story, as I said, is in these uh, six, 17 volumes, 16 volumes. I'm only going to be able to give the briefest of overviews uh, tonight. Those of you who are indefatigable scholars, or may soon become, will find that there's a uh, form outside and you can get at 30% discount all of these earlier uh, volumes and you may indeed find they're very useful. For example, the UN's role in statistics, uh, often not realized, but as I'll mention very briefly, the UN's UN really was responsible in the late 40s, early 50s, in developing the system of national accounts, 
which rapidly spread, indeed the volume quantifying the world, shows that it was truly extraordinary how in the late uh, 40s, early 50s, the UN standardized system of national accounts spread throughout the world and many other indicators since. We've had an advisory panel. I'm not going to mention them all, but there's some of their faces. We've had funding, as I've indicated, not only from the United Kingdom, but from many others. Everyone has agreed that the project had to be independent of the formalities of the UN. It's been based at City University, New York, and uh, it's, um, we've had no interference, I'm pleased to say, of any sort. Early on, we called our volume, the first, the first volume, which actually won a prize ahead of the curve, and we concluded that ideas matter, but also people matter. And one of the parts of the project has been oral histories of 79 senior people who've worked for the UN. We interviewed uh, all the living secretaries general that uh, until Mr. Ban Ki-moon, he had not become Secretary General, Secretary General when we did that part. Um, and uh, we have the views, therefore, of people from uh, all over the world. Summarized some of the selections in UN Voices, and um, there's some of the people we did interview, uh, and many others. The key point about the interviews, which really emerged when we were, we prepared very carefully, but we found people talking about the early, their early experiences. And as we were talking about, as we were interviewing senior people, many of their early experiences when they were children were in the 30s during the Great Depression or in the 40s during the uh, Second World War. And those experiences enormously affected how they looked at the world, often where they got their ideals and their wish to work for the UN. So that is the works are summarized, uh, some of the interviews in UN Voices, but also there is, for those of you who are interested in the research, a CD-ROM, completely indexed, uh, user-friendly, which has the transcripts uh, of uh, everyone we interviewed. So, which were the nine ideas that changed the world? I haven't got time to go over them now. I'm going to mention them briefly. Human rights for all. Now, remember, this was in the Charter in uh, 1945, and Eleanor Roosevelt in 1948 chaired the committee that gave us the Universal Declaration for Human Rights. The idea of human rights for all at the time is quite extraordinary. Remember, there were three major powers uh, in the UN at the time. The US, of course. Blacks couldn't have the vote. Indeed, uh, many of the delegates going to the founding conference at San Francisco were either not waited on when they were taking trains across the, uh, across the United States from New York or were asked to please wait until 
anyone white has finished their meal before you can eat. The Brits, we have our colonies. The idea that human rights for all applied to everyone in the colonies was not quite in the, uh, in the perception of people at, the moment, at that time. The Soviet Union had its gulags. So there was an evil coalition which said, human rights for all, we need a declaration. But please, not for action immediately. Please. And there were different reasons why the Brits and the Americans and the Soviet Union all wanted a declaration, but providing it didn't apply to them at the moment. But if you read the volume by Sarah Zaidi and Roger Normand, you will see how what started with great doubts and cautions became, for reasons I'll come to, a human rights declaration followed up by conventions, followed up by CEDAW, the Convention against the, for the Elimination of All Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, in which countries were asked individually to sign their commitments to these rights, to embody them into national law, and international machinery was set up uh, to make it possible. Let's take gender equality and women's rights. The UN, particularly with the four World Conferences for Women, 1975 in Mexico, 1980 in Copenhagen, 1985 in Nairobi, some of you might just remember, 1995 in Beijing, played a major role, those conferences. People, women particularly, came from all over the world suddenly found that many of the concerns which they had been experiencing in their own countries were being echoed by parallel experiences, sometimes more advanced, sometimes further back in different ways by else in other countries. And women went back from these conferences, mobilized not only by the declarations that the conferences had come out with, but mobilized by being part of a wider network. The volume by Devaki Jain, Women in the UN, A 60-Year Quest for Equality and Justice, tracks this individual story in a fascinating way and brings out particularly a third world perspective uh, on these issues. Development goals. It may be we think of the MDGs today and indeed rightly so. But actually the UN in 1960, UNESCO in that case, came up with three major regional education conferences that set goals not merely for primary education, primary, secondary, tertiary level education for each of the regions and to be applied country by country. And those, uh, those early goals actually had considerable impact and indeed, one of the things we have tracked is all the goals that have been adopted by the UN, what has been the impact uh, subsequently? And the answer is two or three of the goals of the 50 have been considerably, have been more or less completely implemented. Most dramatically, perhaps, the goal passed by World Health Organization in 1966 for the elimination of smallpox by 19, within 10 years. Okay, it took 11 years. 
the world has been saving something like one and a half, two million people dying a year of smallpox. When the UN uh, began, many people from particularly the South Asian continent had pockmarked faces because smallpox was so widespread. Now you hardly see that. And indeed, in terms of financial estimates, the world has been saving something like one to two billion dollars a year because of the elimination of smallpox. And what did it cost? Three hundred million dollars. One hundred million of international finance, three, two hundred million of national finance, the cost in total of three fighter bombers. The other end, there have been some goals, particularly for least developed countries. The 0.7 goal for development aid has been brilliantly implemented by the Scandinavian countries, still yet to be achieved uh, by the, um, most of the other industrial countries, although I'm pleased to say that Britain and France and other European countries have now set 213, 214 as the time when they will achieve that goal. Well, I could go down, but I'm going to skip at this point because I know Louis is going to elaborate a bit. Take your time, Richard. I know, but uh, not too much time. We want to have uh, time for interaction. I want to make uh, a point here about how the goals were not switching on a light bulb and no change afterwards. Human rights, I've said, uh, for all, moved from aspiration to implementation. It was really the Vienna Conference in 1993 which set up the, uh, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. That had actually been proposed in 1947 by one of the key figures in the UN. It was not acceptable at once. Indeed, it took, I think, I mean, 47 years later before it was accepted. Now we have had Mary Robinson and other, distinct, and other distinguished uh, high commissioners leading and being personally uh, visible and responsible for seeing how progress is being made on human rights. Gender equality has moved from elimination of discrimination to a whole range of insights and uh, commitments to women's empowerment. Let me just say a word on the environmental sustainability because as our volume brings out, perhaps that is the area, the goal, where we've seen most change, not only in the goal, but in the uh, awareness of the goal. In 1962, as a volume coming out by Nico Schreiber, uh, on development without destruction makes clear. In 1962, the UN uh, passed uh, legislation saying that countries had sovereign rights over their own national resources, to manage their own national resources. Again, that may seem to many people, well, surely that's reasonable. Remember, 62 was just at the end uh, of the colonial period, in which it had been assumed that rights over resources was indeed many times 
there is the, the right of the colonial uh, occupying power. So that was the first view, the right of sovereign nations to manage their own resources. 1972, when awareness of environmental issues, particularly in the industrial countries, had come in, Maurice Strong ran the conference in Stockholm on environment and development. Indeed, it was originally going to be a conference on human environment. And the developing countries thought what's going to happen is we're going to be told to slow down our development so that the world is not overloaded with environmental threats. So that became a conference on environment and development. 1987, Mrs. Brundtland led the environmental uh, uh, environmental um, uh, report on our common future. There the theme was the needs of the present generation must be met without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So the intergenerational point was brought in. As early as 1988 came the setting up of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's hit the headlines in the last, what, five years. It was actually set up as early as 1988. And then there was the Earth Summit, and there was Kyoto and Copenhagen. The shift from absolute scarcity of resources of non-renewable resources shifted to the need to avoid pollution or destruction of renewable resources, water, air, soil and forests, until 1990 when the problem of environment was defined as how to survive in a global fishbowl. But by the end of that decade, with the Kyoto, uh, Kyoto Conference and Protocol, the, the shift focus, the, the focus shifted to how to survive in the planet when the whole fishbowl has been put into a microwave. Thank you, Alice and my wife, for that nice phrase. I, I was sure about that. So survival of the planet is now the key issue, as I'm sure we all know, with climate change, but with many others. I think, Louis, I've reached the point when you ought to take over and give us a view on the economic uh, ideas. Louis is going to, for reasons he'll explain, to talk sitting down. Yes, indeed, um, ladies and gentlemen. Happy to see all of you, 250 people I counted when Richard was talking. Ever since I set foot in London on last Sunday, I have spells of dizziness which I never experienced before. It may be because of the beauty of the city. It is certainly not the alcohol I had. I had not had a drop of alcohol since I came, so it must have other reasons. I would have preferred to stand up in my full splendor and height, but I don't want to run the risk of keeping over and falling from the platform, which is one of my specialities, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That was true in Norway when we had a presentation. In, in Oslo, I moved my seat and I fell off the plate. Anyway, that is not <laughs> even. 
Um, don't look at the PowerPoints. Just look at me. I want your full attention. I want to give six or seven specific examples of ideas, economic ideas, uh, that uh, have been launched by the UN family of organizations. It's not just the UN in New York. It's the whole structure of UN organizations. Now, you have heard how enthusiastic Richard talks about the United Nations. He is a true believer. He loves the United Nations. I don't. Mind you, I mean, I have nothing against it, but I look at it a little bit more critically. Although, in the economic field, there has been less of success stories than in the field of human rights, gender, environment, although... In the first half of the, exist, the half of the period of the existence of the UN, there have been very interesting things. Let me give you four examples. Four examples. Around 1950, three reports were written by three commissions. One on employment. We're talking about 1950, eh? One on employment. One on national development strategies. And one on the international framework, international economic relations. Two future Nobel Prize winners were involved, uh, W. Arthur Lewis, who spent time at LSE, uh, and Theodore Schultz. These reports gave a fully-fledged picture of a comprehensive, what we now would call a global development strategy. It looked at uh, the national uh, scene, uh, agrarian reform was recommended, It looked at uh, commodity agreements. It looked at um, massive transfers of investments to the developing countries. It looked at an increased role of the World Bank, where we had to wait, as you know, till 1968 for McNamara to arrive, for the bank really to expand. And it looked at the IMF. It recommended that it be proactive to avoid crisis in the developing countries. If those recommendations would have been implemented, I believe, we believe, that the world would have been different. Not that economic crisis would, have, would, would be avoided, but the world economy, the global economy, would have been a much more balanced um, economy than we have today. When I read an article by Joe, by Joe Stiglitz in the International Labour Review, uh, He said, it's a recent article, he said, if the Americans had used the 700 billion bailout dollars, 700 billion bailout dollars, to set up a, a, a bank, a government bank, instead of bailing out the banks and, the, uh, and, and certain industries, and with a leverage of 1 to 12, which is not enormous, Um, 8.4 trillion dollars would have been created for world economic development. And when I, when I read that, I said to myself, you see, look, a path not taken. And the path for the, what was recommended by the three reports was not taken, to our regret. Second example, Hans Singer, who died recently, 95 years old, one of the first recruits in the, uh, in the UN, Um, he showed also around 1949, 50, 51, that the terms of trade 
between primary producers and industrial countries and industry producers were moving over the long haul against the primary producers. And that therefore, there was only one way for developing countries to, to develop, and that is to industrialize. Raoul Prebis, who, who became uh, executive secretary of CEPAL, the Economic Commission for Latin America, in 1950, produced a short report, 50 pages long, on the problems facing Latin America, and he put the figures of Hans Singer and the, and the conclusions of Hans Singer in the center-periphery framework. So he also said we have to have import substitution, which is nothing else but the infant industry argument, and we have, but we don't have to have it for too long. Now, of course, the Latin Americans, and I love Latin America because I worked there, did not listen to Don Raul. They continued for too long with their import substitution, whilst the, whilst the East Asian countries, of course, switched in time. Uh, now, if you, when I came to the OECD Development Center in the 1980s, people asked me, why are you talking about Raul Previs? Isn't he that fellow center periphery? a protectionist man, he wanted so much government. Now, of course, today that sounds uh, very funny, because today we have discovered that we need more government in economic uh, action, and that no country can really develop without short periods of, um, of um, protectionism. That goes back to Alexander Hamilton in the United States, who was the first... Secretary of the Treasury of the Independent USA, and he introduced a, um, a protectionism against the exports of the and the imports of the United Kingdom. It goes back to uh, Friedrich List, and it goes back to those historians, economic historians, who have studied uh, the economic development of the industrialized countries today. No industrial country has been able to develop without a period of protectionism. And these are the countries that now say, hey, you suckers in the developing countries, you must liberalize. Uh, third, because I see, uh, I see here a past uh, director of UNRIS, the United Nations Research Institute for Social Development, and the newly appointed director, the first lady appointed director of UNRIS. You don't know what you're getting into. Tandika and Sarah, can you just just identify yourself? Good luck. Unrist, which was founded in 1964 thanks to Jan Tinbergen and the Dutch government, and as you have heard from my accent, I am from the Netherlands, so I am proud to say that. Unrest has proven that small can be beautiful and productive. We may come back to that in the discussion. But in the 1960s and early 70s, in Unrest was developed the so-called unified approach. It was a development approach that tried to combine economic and social dimensions. But it was the UN Institute of Social Development. And that was a big progress, although... It disappeared with only a little trace, and that is 
The fourth issue I want to talk about is the basic needs development strategies. We in the ILO, in my days, in the 70s, we stood on the shoulders of the unified approach to uh, introduce, develop, uh, write up a strategy called basic needs development strategies, where even the, the lowest 20% of the population would meet a certain standard of income, of housing, of education, etc., which, re- which uh, required both a pretty important rate of economic growth, 6%, we had calculated over 25 years, and an important income redistribution. That uh, idea was launched in 1976 at the World Employment Conference, was greeted enthusiastically by everybody except the tripartite, you know ILO is government, trade unions, and employers, except by the tripartite delegation of the United States of America. Uh, And for a short period of time, five, six years, it became a very popular thing. When when President Carter was elected in November 76 and came to power in January 1977, USAID had basic human needs all over the place. The OECD DEC countries were all in favor. McNamara was all in favor. He appointed Mabupul Haq, whom we will meet again when we talk about human development. He appointed Mabupul Haq to quantify better the basic needs approach. Well, in nine, of course, in the 1980s, and this is, uh, I'm now moving from the positive to uh, less positive things. In the 1980s, this is my fifth point, the disaster of the Washington Consensus was introduced. Structural adjustment policies. I think one should call, it, one should call things by the name. Uh, this, uh, these were not the best of policies. The UN was marginalized. World Bank and IMF took over. And so did the industrial countries. Eh? The, they all climbed on board of the structural adjustment policies, which it has now been proven uh, by among others, Dr. Vreeland, uh, have been very negative throughout. Now, do we have the? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I want I want you to see one piece. That's right. Now here we have the results. Latin America between 1960 and 1980 per capita income grew by 80 percent. In uh, 1980 between 1980 and 2000 it grew by 9 percent. Overall, over 20 years, per capita income. In uh, Africa, of course, it was even worse. Between 1960 and 1980, it was still 36%, over 20 years plus. But between 1980 and the year 2000, and these were the structural adjustment years, minus 15%. This was what happened to, um, to the, uh, in, the, in the last 20 years of the last century. Uh, in uh, the developing countries. Now, the UN was totally marginalized, except one organization, UNICEF. And I must say, uh, my my friend and colleague (laughs) Richard Jolly is to uh, thank for this. UNICEF produced in 1987 
a two-volume study called Adjustment with the Human Face. And it had an impact on the World Bank and on the IMF. I was once exceptionally upgraded in an Air France flight from Washington to um, Paris, and I found myself next to Michel Candessu, who was then the uh, managing director of the IMF. And I checked with him. I said, did that study have any impact? He said, yes. Well, I said, I haven't seen much of it, but I'm happy to see that you tell me that it had an impact. Number six, the 1990s. Now, in the 1990s, the UN is coming back. Uh, And it is coming back mainly through the Human Development Report. The Human Development Report next year will, will, will celebrate its 20th anniversary. I think it should close down by then, because if you haven't got any results in 20 years, you will never get it. But in 1990, Mabu Bulak and Amartya Sen, two brilliant uh, economists uh, from Asia, had this fantastic idea of a human development approach. I was, as I said, I was very happy with that because they took a bit of the basic needs approach with them in that um, in that, now, you would have thought these reports are being translated in I don't know how many languages. Uh, there are 600 national and regional development, human development reports. They are being sent to everybody in the world. I get three copies each time. I'm very grateful, so I can give it also to my neighbors. There is a journal of human, uh, of human development. There is an, associ- an association of human development. Now, you would have thought everybody's talking about human development. No. No. It has not really penetrated the economic profession. And it has, I would have thought, and I'm happy that we have a, a former administrator of UNDP here, I would have thought it has not even penetrated the UN. Or may I say it has even penetrated UNDP. We put in the report, and Richard is responsible for that sentence, <laughs> it is as if the annual launch of the UNDP report is just a publicity stunt. And so the UN, the UN, the UN and the UNDP people take advantage of that, but it has not really gotten a real impact. May I have my last point now? Richard, you talked for 20 minutes, and I'm now gone for 15. Right? You're counting. Although the World Trade Organization is not a member of the UN, you cannot talk about international trade uh, without mentioning the World Trade Organization. Now, the famous or the infamous Doha Round. The Doha Round started in 2002 in the wake of 9-11. Oh, the penny dropped. Maybe these, these terrorist attacks have something to do with the lack of economic development, frustrating rounds of job-seeking of young people. And we, it's, so the round started out as a development round to further the development of the developing countries. We are now in 2009, seven years later. And what has become of the Doha round? It has become a round to open the borders of the developing countries, particularly in the field of manufacturing and services. 
Do we do very much about our agricultural protection? No. And so this is a messy situation. And I think the UN should call the WTO to order. Now, I finish. In, Oslo, in Stockholm, in Uppsala, actually, in Uppsala, where we had a launch, we were asked by an entrepreneurial lady, and she said, why, give me examples of a good idea, of a good idea which the UN launched, which has not been successful. And I rephrased, because of course I have to answer all the difficult questions. Uh, I rephrased the, uh, the question. I said, okay, now, why are good ideas often not successful? And why are bad ideas successful? Now, the good idea, I, of course, I took my basic needs idea. I said, look, it's a question of cycles. It started out optimistically. There was even a beginning of implementation. Then it was five years. Then ten years it was thrown in the waste paper basket. We had adjustments, uh, structural adjustment assistance. And then it came back timidly in the human development approach, which, of course, as I just said, has not yet had very much impact either, but it is coming. So this is, this is interesting. It started out positively, then it disappeared, and it came back, cycles. Now, the bad idea, obviously, is structural adjustment. Why structural adjustment was ever accepted by everybody in the developed countries, by the world, blah, 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 is beyond me. And beyond Richard, I may say, and that's even more important. And so structural adjustment had its time. It is disappearing, has disappeared quickly, and I hope it will have disappeared for good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Louis. I'm going to go straight on, so we're missing out these various things, to the balance sheet. In order to draw up a balance sheet, we had to consider, well, how do ideas gain global influence and traction? And drawing on political science as well as in economics, uh, we identified four ways, and in the book you'll see in Chapter 12, we've tried to look at the nine ideas and see how, how they stack up in relation to these four ways ideas uh, can have an impact. Ideas can change the way issues are perceived. Ideas can redefine state and non-state interests and goals and thereby set agendas for action and get some clout behind them. Ideas can mobilize coalitions to press for action, as when the idea of debt relief as a certain essential gained real uh, traction among many NGOs, and then in Birmingham and subsequently more broadly, pressed their governments to take action. And fourthly, ideas can become embedded in institutions with the institutions having formal responsibilities for implementation and monitoring. I mentioned earlier on the creation of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Well, applying that, we have in our Chapter 12 
some positives of the bank, and these are nine. Again, I'm not going to read them all out. I am going to identify quantifying the world, the point I made earlier on about statistics. I am going to just underline bringing issues of environment and development to global attention, especially now global warming. And those are the main positives we have identified. We have got negatives on the balance sheet. Late reaction, as Louis has explained, to the Washington Consensus, the structural adjustment agenda of the 1980s and somewhat the 1990s. Weak response to the special needs of the least developed countries. The UN in 1964, when UNTAD was created, came up identifying the least developed countries. The least developed countries as a formal group have never been accepted by the Bretton Woods institutions. And although the world, although the UN has had three global conferences, they haven't really uh, gained traction. Too little done to introduce cultural aspects into the development equation. Tardy and weak reaction to HIV AIDS and inadequate intention in general to inequalities of income and wealth nationally and internationally. So as a summary of the UN's contributions looking back, we say the balance sheet shows a small but significant surplus. We identify the way the UN has led the way with many fundamental ideas more often than is realized. The UN has often been ahead of the World Bank and the IMF, though these have received most donor support and most finance. And we do feel that ideas may be among the UN's most important contributions. Indeed, uh, when Tom Weiss drafts, he tends to say ideas have been among the, among the UN's most important contributions. And now it's, oh, there's a wonderful quote there. Lord Issa Rizbe, one of the people we identified who was an assistant secretary general uh, of uh, UNESCO for a couple of years. And she once, as she said in her interview, the UN has often been described as a dream managed by bureaucrats. I would correct that by saying that it's become a bureaucracy managed by dreamers and certainly you have to be a dreamer to work in the UN with conviction it is only if you have this sense of mission that you can withstand the constant battering by governments who are afraid that the UN will become a world government so in the end someone who works in the UN has to be a magician of ideas because working for the UN is like working for a government in which all the political parties are in power at the same time. Louis will now take us for the final five or ten minutes to ten global challenges for the UN's future and how the UN can be strengthened to tackle them. Well, that was very short, Richard. You don't give me a break. No. Nope. You know, look, I've been talking for 20 minutes. I have to start again? Yep. Now, Chairman, um, this session ends when? Uh, just before 8 o'clock. So we should... Oh, before 8 o'clock. Oh, 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 10 no. minutes. Okay. o'clock. I will get enough. Oh, at, at most. Um, look at this 10. 
Now, we were, of course, talking uh, all the time, implicitly, about a future-oriented history, standing on the shoulders of the past, and you have heard now 20, 40, 45 minutes about the past, what should happen in future. Now, we have these 10 um, priority topics there, but that is not really important. Look back in 1999, would you have imagined... Uh, that uh, the, back in 1999 we would have the problems we now face Russia was in all kinds of trouble then now it's again a big player the environment was just on the horizon now it is big um, etc so I don't want to spend too much time there let me just give let me see let me see 10 global challenges oh let take number 2 there Strengthening global governance in a multipolar world. Now, who would not be, who would be opposed to that? We have globalization. Um, private sector has uh, has become globalized. There is no countervailing power, the equivalent of the state at the global level. So surely, we must have a strengthening of global governance. Now, how can, how can, how can you get it? Look at the Security Council. That was the situation in 1945. Totally frozen, and it's still there today. And it will be a quasi-impossible task to get France and the UK off their seats and give it to the European Union. Right? That would be the end. So that's going to be a huge problem. Let me give one more example. Balancing regionalism with globalization. Now, nobody understands that, right? Let me explain Regionalization, European Union, for instance, is state-driven. There were six ministers of foreign affairs and, state, and six prime ministers sitting around the table in Rome back in 1957. The private sector was nowhere to be found. Globalization is a private sector-driven phenomenon. State is nowhere. It's the private sector that escapes the constraints that have been imposed gradually at the national level by moving to the global level. So what, what this says is that we must look at possible situations where regionalism may be well off by getting a little bit more private sector and globalization surely must have more of a state implication. I'm from Holland, but you're in, you're in the European Union too, finally. I get, I get nervous about all these interventions by Brussels. I really get nervous. They, they prescribe everything. I said, get off my back. I mean, I can understand the Norwegians who have voted twice no against the European Union. So a little bit less government at the regional level, a little more government at the, at the global level. Now, what is important? is whatever the objectives and whatever the problems that the UN is trying to tackle because they are global problems. How can the UN do that? Do I have my second? Uh, yeah. Richard, get to work. <laughs> what must happen in the UN for it to be able to tackle better, more efficiently, quicker, whatever the problems are they want to tackle? Well, let me make only one thing clear. Change the recruitment policies. Recruitment policies in the UN is one big disaster, like in many bureaucracies. 
We want for each program, problem that has been identified, we want a task force headed by a person who is worldwide known as a master in solving that problem. That person must be able to recruit the team he wants to recruit. No, 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 no constraints, no bureaucracy, no personnel departments. They call the human resources departments now. He must have total freedom to recruit the team he wants. And then he should have contacts with research institutions worldwide on this problem, including in the private sector. There's a lot of research going on in the private sector. Nobody, nobody in the UN is really uh, uh, talking about that. What we now have, and that is number three, we have certain intellectual islands. And it, because I knew that we had these two directors of UNRIS there, I have mentioned UNRIS. UNRIS is an intellectual island in an ocean of sterility. Wider is an intellectual island in Helsinki. The Human Development Office in UNRIS, in, yeah, in, UNDP. I would say UNRIS. The, the Human Development Office in UNDP is an island of creativity. This we should, of course, continue to stimulate. Now, there has been a report, this is my final point, Chairman. I see you look, well, I still have a couple of minutes. There is now a report which says uh, governing as one or something. What is the title? Yes. Yeah? Governing as one. Which is a delivering. Delivering, delivering as one. It is a report that tries to do away with the smaller, with these smaller islands, wants to create big bureaucracies. We don't want that. We want smaller creative, creative islands. And that is an earthquake in, in any bureaucracy to, to get top person who is internationally known. Give freedom to that person to recruit whoever he wants and to make contacts with um, with the research institutions he wants. That is Sorry, who, who sponsored this report, Delivering as One, which you're criticizing? It is. It was the, the, U, General, the, the, the UN, of course. I yeah, see. Wanting, I wanting a kind of hierarchical um, yes, homogeneous. Yes. It's, 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 it's a lot more complicated. Okay. Yeah, Mark may bring yeah. out. Yeah, but the chairman is an intelligent man. He understands it very quickly. But, okay, Mark will defend it. One, <laughs> there, there is one book you should read in that connection. And that is a book by Jean-François Richard. Now, he is not French, he is from Luxembourg. R-I-S-C-H-A-I-D. He was a vice president in the, in, the, in the World Bank. And now, since he left the World Bank, he's got a new, he's got a good ideas. Why, why would it be so? The book is called High Noon, 20 Problems, uh, 20 Years, 20 Problems, 20 Years to Solve Them. High Noon, subtitle, 20 Problems, 20 Years to Solve Them. And he is having a, an approach a little bit like I have explained. For each problem, each of these 20 problems, double the ones we have, for each of these 20 problems, set up a task force which can tackle them in the way they want. <laughs> so, whatever the, whatever the problems uh, the UN wants to tackle, it must really get its act together in terms of recruiting and giving people the freedom to, to, to do intellectual work. 
Are you happy, Chairman? We have – I've only used seven minutes. Okay. We now come into discussion time, and I want to abuse my position as Chairman by asking you to react to what happened to the Stiglitz Commission, because what happened to the Stiglitz Commission, as I understand it, illustrates a real major problem of the UN, which you kind of alluded to just in passing, but it seems to me absolutely fundamental. Let me just summarize. The Stiglitz Commission was set up to make a report to the UN about global financial reform headed by Joe Stiglitz, but bringing in lots of other people. And this commission worked for a long time. It reported to the UN in June. There was then a special conference held by the UN to consider the Stiglitz Commission report and then to approve a version of that report. What happened was that the G7 countries, first of all, set – Mark may wish to correct me on this – first of all, sent mid-level people, not senior people, and these G7 people were concerned, above all, to take out from the Stiglitz Commission report everything that was interesting, everything that was stimulating. The result was that they approved a completely watered-down, anodyne thing that said nothing. And the reason for this, above all, was because the G7 absolutely wanted to get the UN out of handling the – in a problem-solving role for the global financial crisis and what to do. Why? Because they wanted this to be done by the IMF, the World Bank, the G20, organizations, in other words, which the G7 controlled. Now, my question is, how do you – what do you think of the future of the UN if this is typical of the kind of political environment in which the UN exists, with continuing deep hostility to the UN becoming involved in other than sort of humanitarian-type things, involved in the hard-nosed economic stuff, which the G7 want to continue to control for themselves? What is your response to that? You will ask yourself to me? Shall I go first? Go first. Did you talk about the three UNs? No, I – Ah, you see, he cut it out to save time. But that is exactly – we distinguished three UNs. The first UN is the UN of the governments. That is what you were – that's what you were talking about. The second UN is the UN of the secretariat. And the third UN – I'm a little bit – I'm – of the three of us, I'm the one most ambivalent about the third UN – is the UN of the NGOs, committees, experts who are outside of the UN but still have a lot of interrelationships. So, what we see – what happened with the Stiglitz report was the first UN tried to minimize the damage, tried to kill it, and that is a real problem. And that is why I have always hammered on the fact that you have to have these centers of – these centers of – the smaller center of creative. They are under the radar screen. When I was working in the – in the ILO, ILO World Employment Program, I created an island of creativity. I could do so because the ILO didn't understand what I was doing. 
I got lots of extra budgetary money because the Americans had just said to the ILO, we will uh, leave uh, two, uh, two years from now. So when I now come back and I see the people I recruited who are now old men and women, they say, Louis, what you did, what we did in the 70s would never, you would never be able to do it now. But I said, no. I, it was not supposed to be possible in the 1970s. You have to find a way and means. Um, so that is my reaction. That uh, yes, the, the the first UN and the governments, and in particular the most important governments, can be a pain in the neck and are a pain in the neck very often. The question is, how do we circumnavigate that? And, and, the, three, yeah. and the three UNs, I think, is a is a key point. If you see, if you go back to what I was saying about how human rights started as a declaration not for implementation and then moved. And that was very much, as I could have explained more, because of the third UN, the uh, NGOs, the churches, and so forth. Uh, just to make one substantive point, the Stieglitz Commission, the Stieglitz Commission report, as Robert was saying, of June, is very important. And those of us who followed the G20 meeting in London and then subsequently uh, in uh, Pittsburgh yeah, yes. will feel that the Stieglitz Commission in a very uh, analytical way identified how you could tackle many of the weaknesses that came up from the two G20 meetings, particularly direct support for the poorer countries in the world. Just a final footnote. The fact that uh, this happened does certainly not mean that, we sh that, that excellent reports should be killed by the author themselves. That report will continue to live mm. and will, may, have, may go through cycles that I, uh, which I explained a minute ago. So don't give up hope. Hope is the last thing to die. Okay. okay, let's take some so, questions. Yes, yeah. um, let's take questions in groups of uh, three or so. Yes, could you just uh, give your name? Hi, my name is Derek. Derek. Um, this is to the both of you. Would you characterize the push for... That's good. Why don't you just...
Good. No, no, no. We can take three questions. Oh, we take three questions. Just, just a second. Sure. Just to be clarifying, would you want to rephrase the question as you wish to answer it, just so people up at the top can hear what the question was? It wasn't entirely clear what your question was. Oh, well, I, I think, I mean, the, the, first, the first question was clear. Uh, did, uh, the you don't need to answer it, but just no, state no, no, the question. No, 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 I said the difference between global governance and global governments. Okay. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, hi, my name is Rodolfo. I'm from Dustin. And um, my question is, you mentioned equal rights as a UN idea. Uh, although that idea was placed in the UN Charter by diplomats at Dumberton Oaks Conference and then subsequently uh, in San Francisco, uh, a much more uh, original UN idea would be maybe the peacekeeping operations, which are not at the Charter itself, but uh, 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 were followed by, by the leadership of Secretary General uh, Doug Hammarskjöld and, and much more. Uh, so thank you. Is there a question there? Yeah, the question uh, is, uh, please comment on, on, on the UN idea that I find more genuine, which uh, is no, the no, peacekeeping no. operations. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Any from up top? Okay, let's answer, take these two questions now. Yeah. You can come back. Uh, let me start with the second. Um, certainly, uh, the, there was a mention of human rights in the Dunbarton Oaks draft. Dunbarton Oaks was 19, uh, sorry, was 1944. 43. 43, very good. Oh, yeah, well, I still think precise. it's 44, but anyway. Um, <laughs> You when was Dunbarton Oaks? <laughs> you won't come in between. But it's very interesting. It illustrates the point of, of uh, Third UN. There was just about a mention in the draft of the uh, UN Charter as emerged from Dunbarton Oaks. The interesting thing was President Roosevelt was afraid that the proposals of the UN, which were going to San Francisco, would very easily mate the same fate as the League of Nations proposals met, in which Senate wouldn't agree. So uh, Roosevelt got, uh, um, uh, I'm losing now the, the name, Archibald MacLeish, to go round and one it, and a number of others, to go round the US and mobilize support for the United Nations mobilize people to say it is a great idea to understand it. And as soon as he contacted the churches, the Jewish Council and other groups, they said, where is human rights? They looked at the Dunbarton Oaks Treaty, draft treaty, and they found, I think, the words human rights were mentioned in one place. And it was the NGOs as early as that who said, we're not going to support this unless human rights are much more strongly represented. So between Dunbarton Oaks and the charter, which went to uh, San Francisco for approval, a lot was added of human rights. It's a perfect example of the power of the third UN to influence uh, what was happening. Um, you're quite right in peacekeeping. I'm sorry, we were running short of time, uh, so I didn't even bring... Uh, bring out this 
uh, evolution of ideas on peace and security. We've got a whole volume on preventive diplomacy, as it's called, uh, and it's a fascinating, uh, and as you've brought out, the fact is that in the Charter there was no mention of peacekeeping, and many of the ideas of preventive diplomacy which Dag Hammarskjöld uh, produced. I hope you'll find them accurately presented in our volume as well as in the more detailed one. Let me quickly give um, my comment on the global government. Um, it is interesting to us, Louis and myself, as the economists working with uh, Tom Weiss, who is a political scientist, that somehow amongst political scientists the concept of global government has just disappeared. It's global governments, sorry, governance, which is defined as governance without when there is no government. Louis and I go back to the fact that McNamara Jan and Jan Tinbergen both talked of the need for global government, not total, not universal, but key elements of global government. So, of all the things that might be said about this, I'd make one point and one point only. There is a disciplinary set of blinkers that those, particularly in political scientists and political science and international relations have, they almost have ruled it out of consideration. And yet, in the early 40s, the late 40s, early 50s, there was lots of talk of federal systems, the need for global government on some sort of federal basis. One footnote, one, just a second. At the national level, governance means government plus. At the global level, it means doing something in terms of governance minus, minus a government. So it is um, global Government was something that did not precede the UN, but it was much more talked about before the UN and during the first part of the UN. And all of a sudden, since there are all these political scientists, many of whom are here in this room, student, they thought, well, we will never get to global government, so let us invent something called global governance. But Richard has said it all. Okay, any more? The Belkin, we want the balcony. Yes. Les enfants du paradis. Oh, we have, we have. Claire, oh. Claire Short, and then you. Claire? I think there's a danger in talking as though the UN has to do things that we're not doing in our societies and countries. I mean, the only way you get major significant change in the world is when there's tides of public opinion that move their governments and create new ideas. And I think we're in a time of confusion and inaction. I mean, the, the credit crunch has destabilized everyone, but we've got the G20 pretending that they're fixing it. I think we're going to go through much more turbulence and chaos, out of which you get the threat of right-wing resurgence and ugliness, and you get a gathering of generous ideas. So I think... I just want to say that if these young people look at the UN, they might think, if that's our saviour, we're in trouble. But it's an instrument that we can use when the times are ready to, to drive forward major international change. It's not just institutions do it. It's when there's tides. We wouldn't have got the UN 
if we hadn't had the Second World War and the dreadfulness of that that made governments willing to create institutions that they wouldn't have otherwise contemplated. So if we talk about three UNs, it's as though it's all just mechanistic, but it's much bigger tides of ideas. And I think we're going into a very turbulent, difficult time out of which ideas will have to lead us, otherwise we're going into a resurgence of fascistic ideas across the world and terrible suffering. It's not really a question, but... Hear, hear. Yeah, but do you have an answer? Well, let's take some more questions. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Peacekeeping failures. Yeah. Failures. Thank you. My name is Julius. Uh, what needs to be done to expand the space? The, the, the space within which the three different UNs uh, interact and associate. Uh, and would you think that expanding that space, that level of interaction, would uh, ensure that the ideas that the various uh, elements of the UN bring on board get implemented? Thank you. Um, well, you're, you're thinking, let's take those two questions. Okay, shall I start? Yeah. yeah. Um, on um, Claire Short's statement, uh, which implied a big question, that is, the UN in itself, without regional and national um, assistance, cannot do very much. That is why I, we put the emphasis on uh, task forces that have tentacles into um, national research institutes, including private research institutes, in order to suck up the knowledge at the national level. Uh, think of the UN IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It is a perfect example of the three UNs working together, thousands of scientists involved, although not all. When I meet a scientist in the United States, he just... He, doesn't believe in, in the human intervention in climate change. But still, the, 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 the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I think, is a perfect example of how we have the UN, uh, research institutions, scientists from all nations and, and backgrounds to, um, to try to have the knowledge that exists at the national level and to propagate it more generally. That is uh, as far as I can go, Richard. You have been reading, rereading our book. Uh, I'm going to leave that one there. On peacekeeping, no, it wasn't left out uh, for those reasons. And I was just looking to see uh, in our chapter on peacekeeping whether it had the statistics that um, certainly you will find in preventive diplomacy. Um, which is that, of course, not all the peacekeeping interventions have been successful. I think there's about 17 or 18 in the last uh, 20 years, something like that. 
And actually, more have been successful than have failed. So it's not one or total success, and it's certainly not total failure. And indeed, as I think this slide brings out, that there's now more peacekeepers deployed than ever before. 160,000. Yes, 160,000 at the moment. I don't think, I didn't hear you, Louis, say, how can you expand the interaction among the three UNs? I think there's many ways. I think the formal way of trying to create a part of the UN as representing either NGOs or a constituency, but I'm not personally very much persuaded that that's going to go very far. But in informal ways, as we've indicated, I think the third UN is very important and has already been very important. And I think there are many ways in which that can be carried forward. As I saw, for example, in UNICEF. But I think formal structures are not necessarily the way. Although, to Claire's point, people at country level indicating that they want internationally some of their concerns dealt with and some of their instruments, which to take the case of control of monopolies, we do need international regulations in that area, just as every capitalist country has at national level. I think that takes one a long way to talking about the specifics of global governance that are needed internationally, many of which can be supported by many parts of the third UN. One footnote. We have written 17 books. We have summarized that in 320 pages. We have further summarized it now in 50 minutes. So, look, we could not enumerate everything. But as Richard said, the book on preventive diplomacy has everything about peacekeeping. Well, it's 10 to 8, not 8 o'clock. It all depends on the time. This goes up automatically. Anyway, yes, and then Sarah Cook. Thank you very much. My name is Teddy Nicholson. I'm an international relations undergraduate at the LSE. I was just wondering if you talked briefly about one of the more prominent UN ideas in recent years, which is actually above your heads there, the responsibility to protect, and about the fact that it seems to have two very different branches. The intellectual branch, which academically seems to be quite a strong challenge to the notion of sovereignty, and then politically it was endorsed in 2005 by 150 governments, and I don't 
see evidence that 150 governments are willing to accept a major challenge to their sovereignty. Do you therefore forecast that this is an idea whose time will come and we will see the full kind of culmination of it into uh, its kind of intellectual potential from where we are right now? And Sarah? And you mean how to keep focused on longer-term objectives where the yeah. funders are interested in short-term yeah. deliverables? Let, yeah. let me uh, kick off. Uh, and in a sense, the two questions are related. Teddy's question of uh, R2P, as it's called, responsibility to protect. Um, I think what I would make, the point I'd make about that is that uh, Tom Weiss, our co-partner in this whole study, had a major role in the research that went into R2P. And when Louis and I were interacting with him in the early 2001-2002, Tom thought it was going nowhere. He didn't even think it would get accepted initially. I think that was so in the meeting of 2005 or six where 150 governments, as you brought out, did say yes. Even just before that, uh, the strong third world fears, not totally without justification, that R2P could very easily lead to uh, interference in their domestic affairs more generally under the uh, excuse of responsibility to protect. I think there's a very, you don't have to be, go back to colonial times uh, to realize there is a strong third world case of that concern. But there is also a growing number of developing countries which are also concerned with human rights and human concerns and can see that issue. And I think it's very interesting that there has been, uh, has been growing third world support for that, how much there was uh, leveraging uh, by uh, US or other governments, I don't know. But you asked the specific question, do we think in the long run that we will see responsibility to protect uh, being more widely and seriously accepted? The answer is, for yeah. me at least, yes. Yeah. Now, Sarah raises a very similar question. Um, how does one assess impact 
uh, and deal with the pressures uh, of many uh, governments, but I think particularly now DFID, we want impact evaluation of the research uh, that we're supporting. Um, and it's a very difficult issue. Certainly our evaluation of many of these ideas has emphasized that uh, it's taken time. And I think one of the points you've got to bring out uh, tactfully is to say, well, uh, governments, people, we, we do all adjust our ideas over time. I remember the time when IDS Sussex proposed doing some work on corruption and was officially told by the different people at the time, that is not a subject, it's, uh, you mustn't deal with it. The same when in the 70s many of us were arguing that poverty focus should be a major concern and DFID again in the 70s said no. So I think very tactfully, it's not always the most tactful way that you approach the, your funder by saying, well I remember 20, 30 years ago you weren't prepared to see the importance of this. Um, but it is difficult because I think many, much of the work on ideas and research does take time to come to fruition. Uh, not always, uh, and one mustn't use that argument to say, well, you know, it's, I've done a good article in, an, in uh, this journal and um, I hope in time people will pick up the ideas. It does often take longer. We have three minutes yes. left. Do you have anything more to say on those two? Uh, well, I want to make it clear yes. that we have a website. Yes, very good. If you really want to know what we are doing, go to www.unhistory.org. You will find very fascinating things, particularly in the briefing notes. Second, we have a CD-ROM. And this, I will give this one to the person who has asked the most pertinent question. I'm, I have not yet decided who that is. <laughs> These are 79 oral history interviews, lasting from two to eight, nine hours. These are the transcripts, not the voices. These are the transcripts of the 79 oral history interviews. Fascinating. Uh, it, this is an electronic book. Uh, it is, uh, you, you must know many of the 79 people. You think you know them? You don't, because you do not know the first 25 years of that person. Where did he come from? Who were his masters and uh, teachers? Uh, how did he survive? If he, all this is on this CD-ROM, including my interview, which is, of course, among the best. <laughs> Can just, I just as I've got this slide up there, that in the UK, in the Bodleian Library, there is an extraordinary collection of the records of 450 Brits, Britishers, who've worked for the UN and often their spouses who kept a record of what was going on, sometimes very, uh, a very different perspective. And Michael Asquith is at the back and he'll, I'm sure, be glad to tell you more. Uh, Helen Langley, it, it was at one point ah she is here as well of the Bodleian Library and those are, there is a website as I've given there that source of material is just waiting 
for people to use. it's a fantastic source not only of some of the senior brits who work for the un but for many of the other people and sometimes in great detail, george ivan smith or whatever so for those of you probably not so much the term paper possibly an m a. thesis certainly a ph d. there's a great source there okay thank you very much thanks